0: Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Thank you all for downloading, subscribing and sharing with your friends and family. Thank you for all the feedback. You know, this Bakari Sellers Podcast family is growing and it's only because of you. So thank you so much. And this is our special election preview episode where we'll be interviewing my CNN colleague and senior editor from The Atlantic, Ron Brownstein. But before I get to Ron, in our election preview episode, I guarantee everyone wants to listen to this. I wanted to talk about something that's been on my mind for some time now, and it's timely as campaigns run through the tape on Tuesday. And that's modernizing what I'll call the Democratic campaign playbook. So what am I talking about? I came across an article in Politico last week about Black voter turnout in Miami-Dade not being what folks needed to be. And the article includes the typical finger-pointing. Black and brown folks on the ground say that not enough money has been spent getting black and brown voters out to vote. Campaigns send last-minute dollars that they could have spent months before, and lots of bedwetting. Add to this what I've seen from lots of campaigns where I've seen lots of TV, digital, and radio ads that don't necessarily resonate. Lots of interviews with celebrities, while nice, don't necessarily move the needle all while under-investing in voter contact and the traditional field organizing that is key in activating infrequent voters. A voter segment that Democrats absolutely need to hold on to their early voting and mail-by-vote edge. A point we'll cover later with Ron. I understand COVID, I really do. But if Trump can do rallies and we can play football and basketball, we can safely have organizers wear mask, advisors knock on doors and talk to infrequent voters and be tested regularly by the campaigns. We can do that and we should, we have to. Like a military operation, the air game, what we do on TV, the internet, and the radio, supports the ground game. And that's good old fashioned voter contact. And that means you have to actually spend money with people from these communities to do it. Democratic operatives and consultants can't TV add their way to victory every time. And for my organizing friends, You can't just ask campaigns for money if you don't have the data and track record of actually turning out votes. You don't get money just because you're black and brown and from that community. You get the investment and accountability when you can show with data that you know which voters you'll get out to vote and you've done it before. No more street money just because. No more money for pastors just because they think they can turn out votes. And we need more than sign waivers at the intersection and folks standing at the polls passing out literature. We've got to do better. Oh, and while Obama ads are nice, Obama isn't shorthand for let's do these Obama ads and black people will magically show up to vote instead of actually investing in directly talking to black voters in their homes and on their phones. I also love barbershops, but I think we've had enough photo ops of white politicians in black barbershops. Just being real, let's beat Trump and let's give the barbershops a break. Let's beat Trump first. But after that, we need a real family conversation about Democrats and meaningful engagement of black voters and black campaign operatives, because we're still getting it wrong. COVID and Trump are masking what's still an outdated playbook for engaging us. We can be better and we will be better if we want to be. And that's that on that. We decided to do an elections preview episode with Ron because between Twitter and PTSD from 2016, I've sensed a general unwillingness amongst many journalists and everyday folks to call this race for Joe Biden, despite pretty clear and convincing evidence that suggests that 2020 isn't 2016 and that Trump's path to 270 is significantly narrower than it was just four years ago. And despite record turnout in election cycles in 2017, 2018 and 2019 that predicted the Democratic enthusiasm we're seeing right now, lots of people think Donald Trump will still win for no reason other than fear from 2016. I brought Ron on because no one has a better handle on what's happening on the ground or the polling. And he can cut through the noise better than anyone in the business. I hope you all enjoy this show as much as I did interviewing it because I learned a few things here myself. And now on to my brother, Ron Brownstein.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. slash Simmons.
0: So I want to welcome one of my good friends as we sort out what's going to happen tomorrow. I actually believe that we'll know who the president of the United States is in about 36 hours, but other people may disagree. Uh, I have my good friend, one of the smartest people in politics I know, Ron Brownstein. Welcome to the Bakari Sellers podcast, my friend. It's
2: great to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: I've had great people on the show, like uh, Deshaun Watson. Mm. I've had uh, Hillary Clinton, and now I have you. I mean, we're just we are just yeah. continuing with the A list here. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of like you know uh, it's like a Sesame Street puzzle. Like one of these things do not does not. Work.
0: <laughs> so let's talk about let's talk about early voting and what we should make of it. A- according to Target Smart in Florida, early voting has reached 81 percent of the 2016 total. In Georgia, that number is 86 and a half. In Texas, that yeah. number is 99.4. In North Carolina, that number is 84.9. These are all states that Trump carried in 2016. Which demographics are we seeing the highest surges from? And what are your high level takeaways from early voting numbers?
2: Right. You know, early voting, as you know, Bakari, is really hard to get your arms around and to try to understand what's happening, because there are so many variables. It's almost like, you know, it's like in Star Trek or something It's beyond human comprehension in the (laughs) sense that even once you puzzle out who is voting and whether they voted before and who is winning the new voters, you're kind of left with the unanswerable puzzle of how much of this is cannibalizing uh, what was going to happen on Election Day anyway, and therefore is just kind of a shift in time you know, rather than a shift in preferences. So with that as kind of the caveat that it's, you know, it's a little, it's a little difficult. Look, there are differing um, perspectives that that range from euphoria to uh, terror among Democrats about what they are seeing as you go state by state. I have talked to the people who I think are at the absolute nerve center of trying to understand the early voting And they believe, though, when you when you cut through all of it, that Biden is winning the early vote by more than the public modeling suggests, maybe a lot more. And, you know, there was an interesting kind of hint. Uh, this week, uh, the uh, NationScape project, which is this giant mm-hmm. poll that UCLA and um, Voter Study Group I think fund, uh, and has been you know chugging along all year. By the way, finding a very consistent lead for Biden at about that eight, nine, ten point range that that we're ending up with. And then the NBC Wall Street Journal, Rob Griffin published a little tidbit that. Not only was Biden winning among the independents significantly who said they were voting early, he was winning about 13 percent of Republicans who was who were voting early. So uh, if that is correct, and I think there is a growing uh, belief, um, again, among the people who really follow this for a living that it is. Uh, it's possible that Biden is winning the early vote by 15, 16, 17 points, 15 maybe, 15, let's say, let's say 15, which would mean an advantage, a significant advantage going into election day. Now that has to translate state by state, but it is possible. And, and, and I do think that demographically you get a mixed picture on whether uh, African-American and Latino turnout while up is going up as fast as white turnout. But two things are unequivocally clear in the data. I think non-college whites, which are Trump's best group, are falling as a share of the early vote uh really across the board and second uh, young people are participating
0: in bigger numbers than mm. before. you know one of the things that i that stood out to me in the early voting numbers and you just tell me if i'm thinking about this right Hillary Clinton had a 90,000, or Democrats had a 90,000 vote edge in the state of Florida. I'm focusing on Florida here. Had a 90,000 ballot edge going into Election Day. We do know after the votes were opened up, et cetera, and they do the NPA, which is really hard to tell. It's a 1.8 million non-party affiliated yes, voters. Yes, the,
2: that's, the, the, that's the big black box, right? I mean, that's yeah. what makes it so hard, yeah.
0: But after we opened that up and, and counted the votes, she went into Election Day with a 247,000 vote lead two hundred and forty seven thousand vote lead and still lost by one hundred and thirteen thousand yeah, yeah, votes yeah. we we believe that the dim vote margin is probably going to be closer to 115 120 for biden after souls to the polls on sunday and does it make sense that he'll probably have a lead that's larger than the two hundred and forty seven thousand based on the way that independents are breaking that hillary had going into election day you
2: know i can't i don't think i can answer uh i i i but i also think you know, Biden's coalition, as I'm sure we're going to talk about, is so different than Clinton's, particularly among white voters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that it remains possible that, you know, his Election Day mix is going to be different. And and, you know, I, Trump, I think Trump is in a position where, as I said, I, I think the people who follow this believe he is down by more than we think in the early vote. Uh, you know, there's certain logic. I mean, there's no question that Trump is turning out a lot of his voters to and that democrats you know have to be you know, have to come out if they're gonna beat him because I mean, that is his superpower politically. He can bring out a lot of his voters and there is evidence that non-college and uh, non-urban whites are participating in big numbers, you know, really kind of across the board, but they are being diluted, particularly by college whites who are voting in astronomical numbers. And among whom, as you know, Trump faces the biggest deficit for any Mm -hmm. Republican nominee ever. 56, 42 in the national polling today. All eight CNN and a New York Times Santa polls out on the Saturday and Sunday before the election, all eight state polls showed him trailing among college whites in every one of those states around, you know, a broad array of states. So, again, I you know, I I I have trouble, you know, reaching too heavy a conclusion on the early vote because, you know, you don't know what what how much of it is a shift in preference versus a shift in time. But I do think, you know, the people I trust who follow this most closely say, that uh, Biden has built a bigger lead than most people uh, expect.
0: Let me ask you about Election Day real quick. So we know that for Democrats, their E-Day voter probably skewers more infrequent. Yeah. Um, and this is the kind of voter where traditional door-to-door, high-touch canvassing and voter contact is the most impactful. But due to COVID, Democratic campaigns yeah. haven't done this kind of traditional voter contact this year, including the Biden campaign. Do you think that this decision... Although a safe one, because you don't want nobody knocking on your door during the middle of a pandemic. But do you think it puts Democrats at a distinct disadvantage in terms of E-day turnout?
2: Yeah, I do. Yes, yes. I I think I think there is a price for the choice, you know, to kind of maximize safety and be uh, at the high end of cautious. And you can see it in the way that so many local groups, you know, whether it was Beto O'Rourke's group in Texas or some of the community groups, as you know, in, in Florida, kind of abandoned it at the end. Uh, and
0: yeah, (laughs) which is like, we go knock on doors. (laughs) Yeah. Right.
2: So, uh, yeah, I do think, I do think there is a cost. I mean, you know, uh, the, you know, the odd thing going into the final weekend of a, of a president who has been so overtly racist more than any, you know, national figure since Wallace in the sixties, you know, is that margins and turnout among communities of color are a bigger uncertainty for Democrats than what Biden is going to get among both college and even the non-college whites, you know? I mean, as we'll talk about, I mean, you know, Joe Biden was kind of hired to improve a little bit, win back a few non-college whites, and he's doing that. I mean, he's not blowing the doors off, but he is getting to where he needs to be right now, particularly in those Rust Belt states. But yeah, I think the biggest question mark for Democrats, is, you know, interestingly, not only turnout, I mean, it is possible that a turnout is strong enough, for example, among Hispanic voters in the Rio Grande Valley, that Biden could squeeze out Texas, uh, you know, but Florida more immediately, you know, are they going to get the black turnout they need? And are they going to get the margin they need among Hispanics in Florida, the numbers for which have been varying wildly in polls. Um, uh, Real quick, Florida is actually kind of a good uh, pinpoint of where we are. I mean, if you look at the polling again, both The New York Times and ABC came out in Florida, you know, in the final weekend. In both of them, Biden is right at the number that Democrats have historically believed was where they needed to reach among whites to win Florida. I use it, 39 in ABC. He's at 40. Uh, in New York Times, Siena and 40 is pretty much the tipping point, uh, Steve Schell says. But whether it will be enough this time is uncertain, largely because of the great uh, uncertainty about what's happening among uh, you know the, the many different Hispanic communities in Florida. Some polls have Biden only around 50 among them, like ABC and Marist. And those, you know, uh, that's what that is probably then 40 percent of whites probably isn't enough to win. And others like Univision or The New York Times, Siena uh, uh, or some of the others, uh, Monmouth put him in the 55 to 60 range among Hispanics, in which case, 39 or 40 percent of my whites probably is enough to win. So we're going to you know, we're going to see that lever play out. Uh, you know, in Florida, certainly. And, and maybe to some extent, even in like a North Carolina or Georgia, can it, yeah. can Trump pick up just a few points among black men and, and save the state, even though Democrats get to the number they need among whites? I mean, that would be a strange outcome, but it's certainly possible.
0: And I want all my listeners, uh, my left leaning listeners now to back away from the pod and breathe a little bit because yeah. <laughs> your anxiety is probably going through the roof. So what we can tell oh, no, the Biden. I
2: can, no, you know what? You know what? Can, can we can we stop there, though, because it's like I have like a like the, the anxiety question is, you know, it, it, you can get lost in the in the situation here. Go ahead. Because, um, mm-hmm. look, at the moment, Trump does not appear to be seriously have a possibility of winning any state that Clinton won. You know, all 20 states, 233, I think, electoral college votes were 232. Um, and then if you kind of look at the states that are in play, I think the the Rust Belt states are in a different position than the sunbelt states. You know, if you were going to design a candidate in the lab to flip the sunbelt by solving the problem of motivating more younger people of color to turn out, it would not be Joe Biden, right? It would not be a 77-year-old white guy who's been in politics for 50 years. On the other hand, if you were going to design such a candidate to win back a few of those guys in diners that reporters have been interviewing for four years across the, the Midwest, it might be Joe Biden. You know, it's kind of a reassuring uh, figure whose favorables are over 50 percent to end the election in most polls. And in fact, I think we're, we are in a very different situation in the final days of the campaign in the Rust Belt and the Sun Belt. I mean, North Carolina, Florida, uh, Georgia, all total genuine toss ups, maybe a slight lean toward Biden in North Carolina, but it's a tough state. Texas toss up slightly leaning toward uh, Trump. And Arizona, uh, again, kind of a toss up, slightly leaning toward Biden. Look at the Rust Belt. I mean, leave aside Iowa and Ohio, which he doesn't need to win. If Biden brings back the three blue wall states that Trump dislodged, Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, he is president. And Michigan and Wisconsin are, are pretty close to done. I <laughs> they, mean, put
0: the, they put the bed.
2: <laughs> they are pretty close to done. So what you are basically saying at this point in the election is that uh, you know heading into the final 48 hours or 72 hours when we're talking, if Michigan and Pennsylvania are added or returned to the uh, Clinton Obama map, Trump has to win every other swing state. And while Pennsylvania gives Democrats a lot of nightmares, you know the polling has converged at five six, seven points, uh, you know the final the final polls out of Pennsylvania. If he does that, That's it. You know, everything else is gravy. Everything else is making the rubble bounce if he wins Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. So while there's lots of reasons for Democrats to be nervous, particularly about the Senate, we can talk about that in a minute.
0: We're going to get there. We're going to get there.
2: But there are lots of reasons to be nervous. It is Trump who is operating in the very narrow ledge because, you know, he not only has to win Pennsylvania, a state where the polls have been losing, but Democrats are kind of starting to think of Pennsylvania as another Florida, you know, that kind of just doesn't matter what the polls say, it's always tougher than it looks. Fine. That, that's true. But Trump not only has to win Pennsylvania, he has to win every Sunbelt swing state at this point. Uh, there is no margin for error. And, you know, you would have to say that in addition to the big three of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, Biden has, I think, a pretty steady, if not vast lead in Arizona in his pocket. And, you know, Arizona, Michigan, and Wisconsin is enough. I mean, Trump could win Pennsylvania and Florida if, if Biden wins that second congressional district in Nebraska, and Biden still wins. So yeah, I, I understand why Democrats are anxious. They look at these polls, but they kind of need to kind of differentiate between Joe Biden from the beginning has been laser focused. Whatever else you can say about Joe Biden, he hasn't taken his eye off the ball. You know, he hasn't campaigned that much. When he has campaigned, he's campaigned in kind of industrial, mid-sized towns across the Rust Belt. I mean, his focus has been Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin above all, and that, those, as I like to say, three states in a cloud of dust in honor of Woody <laughs> Hayes, that yeah. is his shortest path back to the, to the, for
0: Democrats, back to the Oval Office. Let me ask you just a couple of questions along yeah. that. I talk won't talk next time. No, you're fine. That's a good answer, because that, that 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 was soothing. Talk to us along the same line about the difference in the polling. Well, one, can we talk about the myth that the polling was off in 2016? Yeah. Because yeah. the polling wasn't off in 2016, was it?
2: Well, the national polling wasn't off. The state polling was off a little. I mean, you know, in those key states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, they underestimated the number of non-college and non-urban whites that Trump turned out. And he won the three states by a combined 70,000, 77,000 votes as a result. That could happen again. Sure. I mean, you know, I mean, look, that is Trump's superpower. He is going to turn out a lot of non-college and non-urban whites and probably somewhat more than any poll expects. The problem he's got, Bakari, is twofold. First, as we're saying, his margins among those groups are not going to be quite as high. Mm-hmm. I mean, the NBC Wall Street Journal final poll had him at 58 percent among non-college whites overall, versus 67 ish last time um, uh, in the in the Rust Belt states. And, and I think we will discuss this maybe in more depth. Biden is is, is hitting 40 percent among non-college whites almost in all of those states. And, you know, you say, well, that doesn't sound like much. Hillary Clinton was a 35 percent or below. Uh, among them, so he is cutting the margin. And second, even if if, if Trump generates more turnout, th- that is going to be diluted within a bigger pool. Last time, the increased turnout from Trump mattered so much because turnout was down among African Americans and lackluster among Hispanics and especially young people. Those numbers are going to go up. College white turnout is probably going to be the highest ever. So even if Trump adds more people, I mean, the idea that you can create a turnout differential in your favor. Is tougher when so many other people voting. And by the way, even in the Trump era, the underlying pool of eligible voters continues to evolve away from him. I mean, there are fewer white evangelical Christians as a share of the population now than there were in 16. Non college whites are going to be two or three points less of the eligible voters in 2020 than they were in 2016. So he's got to run faster just to keep in place, much less to then run so fast that you're not only keeping in place from the you know, decline in the population, but you're expanding your share of the actual voters. I mean, it's a tall order.
0: Let me ask you a question about most people say that national polls don't matter. You know, you, you get those smart yeah. asses on Twitter, and the first thing you want to say is national polls don't matter. But can you explain how a lead of 10, 9, 10, 12 points translates across the electoral college?
2: Right. I mean, states have a relationship to the water. I mean, think of the national poll as the waterline. Every state has an intrinsic relationship to the waterline. It's either more Republican. More Democrat, based on largely, uh, you know, two things. Uh, above all, the demography of the state and how it reflects kind of the the underlying allegiances in the, in the national polls, and then how those the tradition of how those people vote. I mean, as as we're saying, non-college whites in the Rust Belt are not non-college whites in the South. I mean, Democrats always have been able to win more of the Rust Belt blue-collar whites than they, than they can in the South, and that is really holding up in the in the polling today. So, I mean, states exist in relationship to the waterline. I mean, the national poll is made up of states, right? I mean, it, isn't like people, it isn't like, it isn't like we're polling all the Americans who live in the air. And then in the state polls, we pull all the ones who live on the ground. Uh, so there is kind of a, you know, there, you know, again, and, and, but it does change. Like, for example, it is possible that we are seeing Pennsylvania become like Florida, a little stickier and kind of less uh, less movable by that national current. You know as that water line goes up and down, Pennsylvania doesn't seem to shift as much as Michigan or Wisconsin, right? So think about it you know, people, people often describe it this way. Hillary Clinton won the national vote in 2016 by two points. and Michigan and Wisconsin were essentially dead heats uh, or maybe slightly Republican. so they were like two to two and a half points more Republican than the country. So then you look at the CNN poll that comes out yesterday and uh, Biden is up 12 points in Michigan. And you say, yeah, that's about right. It's about a nine or 10 point national average. Wisconsin, you know, it's an eight or nine point national average, uh, eight or nine point uh, lead for Biden. And, you know, more or less, that's kind of right. A few more non-college whites in Wisconsin. So it doesn't look quite as much. And then you look at Pennsylvania, which is more like five or six. And you say, huh, well, they were all in the same place last time. How come Pennsylvania hasn't moved as much as the other two? So that's kind of what's happening, whereas Arizona and Texas are kind of moving in the other direction. I mean, right there, they are coming a little closer to the national number.
0: And, and Georgia.
2: And Georgia. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, look, what we are seeing in the Sun Belt is essentially what we saw in the, Can you? I mean, it seems like a long time ago. You know, in before 1992, New Jersey, California, Oregon, and Washington, Illinois, Michigan even. You know, they were not reliably Democratic presidential states. Um, But what we saw in the 90s in the coasts and the upper Midwest were two things happen under Clinton and Gore and Kerry uh, to flip them from red to blue. Two things. Uh, They got more diverse and Democrats improved among college educated white voters. And then we saw the same thing in the 2000s, really beginning in the 2004 election in uh, Denver and uh, Colorado, and we saw it in Northern Virginia. Uh, you know, in in 2008, Obama flips it, and we saw it to a, a similar extent, but not perhaps quite as powerful in North Carolina in that period. So we, we we had the we had we have a very clear pattern, and now that pattern is applying in Arizona, in Georgia, in Texas, and even to some extent in South Carolina. It is the combination of a growing diversity and 40 percent of the vote in Georgia are going to be people of color, which is why it may be even a better bet than North Carolina, where the number is 30. You have growing diversity in all of these states. Arizona, like a majority of the population under 40 is non-white already, combined with Democratic improvement among college white voters. North Carolina and Arizona, Biden is going to win them. He's probably going to get 49, 50, maybe 55 percent of them in Arizona because fewer evangelical Christians, it won't be that high in Georgia or Texas. But if it gets into the mid forties, which is above where Beto or and Stacey Abrams got, once it starts getting into the mid forties, and there's some polling, for example, that has Jamie Harrison in the mid forties, mm-hmm. you you have a base from which to compete in these states because, you know, even in these states, non-college whites are shrinking as a share of the vote.
1: This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment. So it's important to take care of them. I once got Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at vioricom Simmons. Once again, vuori.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by cars.com.
0: This past season, technology took sports viewership to the next level. You know, what we saw in the NBA and the bubble and what we saw in the WNBA with the Wubble, I mean, the digitized fans and how they put people in the seats. Think about that. When it comes to hiring for your business, there's one solution that's been advancing its technology for years, and that's ZipRecruiter. The way the NBA did it, the way the WNBA did it right, ZipRecruiter is doing that technology the same way and you can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash When you post a job at ZipRecruiter, it gets sent out to over 100 top job sites. Then ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology identifies people with the right skills and experience and invites them to apply to your job. It's a winning formula. No wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. So if you want to step up your hiring game, give ZipRecruiter a shot. You've got nothing to lose. Why? Because right now, you get the chance to try ZipRecruiter for free at That's ziprecruiter.com/bakari. That's ziprecruiter.com/b a k a r i. What are you waiting for? Go to ziprecruiter.com/bakari. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So what we, from what we can tell, the Biden coalition is looking very different than the Obama coalition. Yeah. It's going to be older, whiter, more moderate, but you'll also have this potentially record-breaking turnout from younger voters yep. and possibly the most diverse coalition we may have ever seen aligned behind a presidential candidate. So should Biden win, what do you think are the implications for governing for a Biden-Harris administration with this broader coalition?
2: Yeah. I mean, look, he's got kind of a bifurcated coalition, you know, even with the possibility, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, you know, that that Trump is gonna improve a little among African-American and Hispanic men. Even with that possibility, the resistance Trump faces among the women means that those numbers are gonna remain very big uh, in, in the minority community, and as you say, Uh, Biden has a chance to get back to Obama 12 levels or even which was 60 percent among young people or even the 08 level, which was two thirds among young people. And of course, you know, nearly half of those in the electorate now of, of those young people are are also people of color. On the other hand, he is going to perform better than any Democrat ever among college educated white voters. You are going to see, I think, an historic, absolutely historic consolidation of diverse info age High productivity, high output Metro America against Trump. Uh, Trump lost 87 of the 100 largest counties in America last time. He's going to lose more of them. Mm -hmm. He lost them by 15 million votes last time, which is pretty incredible to begin with. And I think that number is going to get way bigger. I mean, millions bigger. Uh, It is, Bakari, it is likely, if not possible, that Trump is reduced to winning counties that generate only 30% of the nation's total GDP, total economic output, 70% or more of the economy may vote Biden. So, yeah, you have you have two very different polls. You have particular in particular, a young generation that is going to be open to really big policy change. Uh, And at the same time, the Democrats are are, are absorbing uh, an unprecedented number of kind of white collar, white moderates uh, in the suburbs who are with them more on cultural issues than necessarily on spending and taxing a lot. There's, there is a way through it. I mean, there is a way through it. I mean, they're, they're, these circles do overlap. You know, for example, you know, building on the ACA, and creating a public option, negotiating prescription drug prices—that that crosses both circles. Uh, investing in green energy—that uh, crosses both circles. Uh, expanded preschool crosses both circles. Some elements of making college more affordable. I don't know exactly how far that goes. So there are ele- there are places where it crosses, but it, it's not going to be easy, especially if it's a 50-50 Senate, which is possible. You know, so, mean, so
0: you you wrote it, this this goes to this piece that you wrote. You wrote a piece yeah. in the Atlantic that I recommend everyone read called Why the 2020s Could Be As Dangerous as the 1850s, where you make the point that things like the filibuster and Republicans' dominance of the federal courts will ultimately limit. Whatever progress Democrats make this week, even if they win the White House, flip the Senate, keep the House, flip some state legislatures, etc. Is it fair to say that the only path, to transformative change in the post-Trump landscape for Democrats would be to do things like eliminate the filibuster, expand the federal courts and D.C. and Puerto Rican statehood?
2: Short answer, I think, is yes. I mean, sooner or later. I mean, you know, Joe Biden's instinct may not be to do these things initially, but I think the way our politics is evolving. And as you know, I believe that the central fault line in our politics is between the people and places who are comfortable with the way America is evolving demographically, culturally, and economically, and the people and places who are uneasy and fearful about the way America is uh, evolving. And that uh, has, I believe, the former group, what I call the coalition of transformation, is very clearly bigger than the latter. And in fact, you know, if Biden wins the popular vote uh, this week, which seems almost
0: certain whatever happens in the election. <laughs> yeah, mean, we, we do know that that, that seems like that's going to happen.
2: Thing. Democrats at that point will have won the popular vote in seven out of eight elections. No party has ever done that in the history of the modern party system since 1828. The Republican party, which won what, like 10 out of 12 from 1860 to 1932, uh, you know, held the White House for all but eight years uh, uh, or 16 years in that in that stretch. They never did it. The, the Democrats never did it after FDR and Truman, seven out of eight. Only one congressional term in the past 40 years have Republican senators represented a majority of the population if you uh, ascribe half of each state's population to each senator. And they are certainly not going to after November if Democrats win, you know, mid-sized and bigger states like uh, Arizona, Colorado and North Carolina. And yet, even though you have what is emerging, I think, as a clear national majority, you know, the structure of the system, like really deep things like two senators per state and the Electoral College magnify the influence of, of, you know, the, the constituencies, the coalition uh, that it, you know, that that Republicans mobilize, which are, which are essentially non-college, non-urban and Christian whites. Uh, So you have States that, you know, where that, where that coalition is dominant, their influence is magnified by the basic structure of our system This you know, it's not, you're not going to change two senators per state, but you have then kind of the subsidiary things that kind of give a further amplification, Mm -hmm. which is the filibuster, and the way the Republicans have kind of built this 6'3 majority on the Supreme Court. That that, that Supreme Court majority, I, I struggle, and you, you i have been interested in your thought. I struggle to think of a single issue on which the instincts of that six three majority are going to be the same as those of millennials and Generation Z. Climate, racial equity, gay rights versus religious freedom. I mean, you go through the list, voting rights. I think on virtually every issue that majority, which could be in place for a decade or longer, absent changes, is going to be colliding with what has what will become by 2024 the largest generation of voters in the electorate. And I just don't think that's sustainable. I don't think you can go 10 years as millennials and Z become you know, the biggest group of voters, drive elections, drive outcomes, pass policy, end the filibuster to pass policy, and have that court repeatedly say, no, you can't.
0: You sound, you um, sound like that, you're making the perfect argument for court packing.
2: Well, I, well, I think it's a bad phrase. I think I think the structure of the court is a legitimate issue, and and, and the two examples I, I have pointed out in in articles for the last couple of years, you know, in the 1850s, when the Republican Party, as the voice of the North, opposed to the spread the spread of slavery to the territories, was emerging as the national majority. As that was happening, seven of the nine Supreme Court justices. Had been appointed by pro-South, pro-slavery Democratic presidents from the earlier majority, in the, <laughs> from from you know Jackson on in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, and, and that court in the Dred Scott decision essentially ruled that the platform of the Republican Party was unconstitutional; that you could not, Congress could not stop the expansion of slavery to the territories. Uh, And then again, in the 1930s, when FDR's New Deal coalition was about to become the majority coalition that would basically rule American politics for the next 36 years, seven of the nine Supreme Court justices have been appointed by earlier Republican presidents uh, who had dominated, as I said, from the Civil War through the depression, and they repeatedly invalidated the early New Deal legislation. It is an explosive combination when you have a court majority impaneled by an earlier political majority uh, that blocks the agenda of what is the emerging majority in the country. And I don't know how it ends. I don't know if it's court packing or Pete Buttigieg's idea of rotating people on and off the court. But the idea that if, in fact, Democrats can consolidate a national majority as broad as seems possible uh, this week and can kind of build and, and let and let and you build on that and also have that swell just from demographic change, And then they are going to let a Supreme Court majority um, put in place by the earlier dominant politics just sustain. I I don't see it.
0: So before I let you go, because that answer was special. I I appreciate that because that's been my thought and I've had a hard time articulating it. So I'm going to I'm going to steal many of those thoughts that you did that you just uh, laid out. I want to run for (laughs) I know. Thank you. I want to run through uh, the swing states. And for each state, I want you to tell me who you think will win. And when you think the state will be called. Oh, wow. OK. All right. I'm less good on the latter than the former, but go ahead. <laughs> Pennsylvania. Biden.
2: And, and it'll take a while. Florida. Uh, gun to my head, I will say Biden.
0: When? I think election night, but.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, look, it's so close. It's like, it's, it's really hard to have a, you know, coherent prediction on Florida, except, you know, somebody's going to win by like, you know, a, a narrow margin. <laughs> but if I had to, I'd say Biden. And yes, Florida calls quickly. And, and could 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 end a lot of the suspense if it does
0: uh north carolina
2: i again would you know would would lean biden but again you know I, as i said before the rust belt states are in a different category they're all most of them are toss-ups to varying degree but i, I would say biden
0: and, and possibly on election night I'm also throw out there that there are four black women running statewide mm. in North Carolina. And so the black turnout is doing things funky that nobody's really paying attention to or they don't have an explanation for. There's mm. also an insanely high number of individuals who, if you look at the polling, it's between 30, 35 percent, maybe sometimes even close to 40 who say they're going to vote on election day in North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's a big one. Uh, Georgia. Ah, uh,
2: wow. Again, I kind of feel like, you know, tie goes to the candidate uh, with the momentum and uh, that was just very hard to call, but again, I, I would not be surprised if Biden wins that by, by a whisker and points it in the direction of you know the the trajectory here is if you can consolidate Metro Atlanta to the extent that that is happening, uh, you know you, you can see where this is going if the Republican Party just continues to define itself as the Correct. as the as the party of kind of non urban America with all of its uh, priorities and and
0: resentments. You do know that the uh, most valuable thing a candidate has during this time period is time and. They yeah. are in the night before they are ending the race with uh, Barack Obama in and, Georgia. And, and Kamala so, Harris
2: uh, and in Ca- Georgia.
0: <laughs> so yeah, that tells you they think they, they think they they think internally that they have polls to get them to 50 percent. And I've yeah. actually heard that from some Republican yes. uh, Republicans say that their polls to get them to 50 percent. That becomes dangerous in the Senate races, which are yes. going to run through. That'll be the last question I ask you before we get you out of here. But Texas.
2: Uh, I would still bet slightly on Trump, but I'm not sure how much it matters. I mean, the big issue to me is, look, you're going to see. It's Biden fascinating.
0: Win. It's fascinating. The fact we're even talking about Texas.
2: No, it, because, well, I was going to say, I was say, not sure how much it matters who wins, because, again, as in Georgia, the path is being cleared here. I mean, Biden is going to win the five biggest counties in Texas by over one million votes. OK, not not the five biggest counties in California or New York or New Jersey, Texas. And it is going to underscore how Trump is exiling the Republican Party from the dynamic, economically vibrant, fast-growing, diverse metros everywhere. So, yeah, are there enough rural voters possibly for him, uh, which he's going to win by 50 points, for him to hold on to the state? And did Democrats invest enough in getting the Hispanic turnout in 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 the Rio Grande Valley and elsewhere that they need? Probably not. Biden could totally win it. But even if he doesn't, you know, the structure is there for them to do what Clinton did, uh, this is an interesting analogy, and I, I, I meant to put it in print, but I will unveil it on your, on your <laughs> show. You know, when Clinton won California in 92, it was not thought to be a safe. I mean, it had voted Republican six straight times. And Clinton, uh, once he got into office, basically had a, someone whose job in the White House was to, like, work on California. And if Biden wins the presidency, he needs to do the same thing uh, uh, for Texas. I mean, whether they win or not. This election is showing them there is a there is a pathway to win uh, that you know probably includes turning out a few more Hispanic voters. Uh, and I mean, they may be maxing out in the in the cities, but 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 it's there. So, you know, yeah, if Trump turns if, if Nacogdoches comes out big enough, you know, Trump still holds on. In all likelihood. But if Biden not only wins the big five, but severely, uh, significantly improves in the second tier, Colin Denton, Fort Bend, Hayes, Williamson, outside of the the biggest cities, um, you're you're looking at a a state that Democrats can definitely win in 2024 at that point. Arizona. Uh, Biden. I think I think, look, again, Maricopa County, in some ways, is going to become the symbol of this election, along with Harris County in Houston and and maybe Cobb and Gwinnett. Um, No Democrat has won Harris County since 1948. I'm sorry, Maricopa County in Arizona, which is Phoenix. No Democrat has won it since 1948. It was the biggest county in America that Trump won. He won only 13 of the top 100. Maricopa was the biggest. He's probably going to lose it and i think that's going to be the symbol of how completely he's being rejected in metro america and 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 the risk that the republican party is taking by allowing him to brand the party uh and what it's doing to them in these places that are driving the economy driving opportunity where young people are, are settling
0: michigan oh biden wisconsin biden iowa trump mm, fair enough let's talk about the senate yeah And we only need to net four seats to flip the chamber. And that goes down to three. If Democrats win the White House and Vice President Harris can break any Senate tie, same deal. Who wins and when do you think it'll be called? Mind you, I think that Doug Jones um, will have great consideration to be the next Attorney General of the United Mm -hmm. States, because I don't think he holds on to victory over Tommy. So
2: the Senate is at a nice edge because uh, the long term trend that we thought might loosen a little bit in uh, 2020 seems to be reasserting itself. I'm giving you a preview of my uh, of my final CNN story before the election. Uh, The the long term trend is that it's getting harder for candidates to win Senate seats in states that usually vote the other way for president. Correct. Twenty six states have voted Republican uh, in most presidential elections since 92. Republicans have 46 of their 52 seats. 24 have voted mostly Democratic or Democrats have 41 of their 48 seats. So the long term trend is toward, you know, the color on the front of the jersey, as I like to say, mattering more than the name on the back of the jersey. And even within that long term trend, we saw an absolute historic peak in 2016. First time ever since the direct election of senators, every Senate race went the same way as the presidential Mm -hmm. race in that state. That's more than 12 or 08 when there are about half a dozen. That you know there, there were departures. I mean, Dean Heller was a departure. Uh, a McCaskill, Hyde, Camp, Mansion uh, back in 08, Bacchus, uh, Susan Collins. Um, so there were some departures before '16. There were none. You know, a month ago, people thought, well, Cal Cunningham might win even if Biden doesn't. Teresa Greenfield might win even if Biden doesn't. Susan Collins conceivably. Mark Kelly might win even if Biden doesn't. Um, Susan Collins conceivably. Uh, John James conceivably could win if Trump doesn't. It's looking real unlikely there are going to be many, maybe any again. I mean, in the polling, uh, interestingly, Susan Collins is the only one with any appreciable crossover support, double digits in in any poll that I have seen. She's the only candidate I have seen in any competitive state who is winning even 10% of the people who are voting for the other side at the presidential level. And and for her, of course, that's way down. And it's not enough to win if Biden wins the state by 10 points. I mean, she'd need a, she'd need a much bigger crossover than that. So let's so, let's run
0: through them. Let's run through them real quick. Yeah, South Carolina. Uh I think too big a hill, Republican. Uh Georgia, Ossoff versus Purdue. Uh if Biden gets to 50, Ossoff can get to 50. That sucks because I really want Warnock to get the 50, but it's so hard because Lieberman's Lieberman's and Democrats don't do us justice. Yeah,
2: (laughs) it's not inconceivable that they, you know, I I, I, can, but Bakari, I can short circuit you right now. My prediction would be every Senate race goes the same way as the presidential race. Bullock would probably have a slight chance of winning. uh, He was my next question. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Bullock maybe uh, could do it, but, you know. It's it's hard. I mean, Greenfield looked like she could do it. And whatever you think about the, the final Des Moines Register poll, generally speaking, uh, I think polling has shown that kind of falling into line with the presidential race. Biden isn't going to lose the state, I don't think, by seven points. I mean, it doesn't make sense with what's happening elsewhere in the Midwest, but it's a tough state for It's 90 percent white. I mean, you know, roughly 60 percent of the voters in Iowa are non-college whites in an era when Republicans are winning an awful lot of them and are going to concede. So you running.
0: have so you got you have Cal Cunningham you have Gary Peters. I got, you the, have I got Mark, the core four. I mean, Mark I got Kelly, Colorado,
2: Arizona, North Carolina, and
0: Maine, Gideon. and I
2: think Georgia is a possibility.
0: So my last question is Alaska. No, no. I,
2: yeah. I, I I think you know I don't know how many billion were spent on Senate races, and it is possible that they all could have just stood in bed, as the saying goes, because it may be that none of them, uh, you know, none of them they will they will run ahead or behind with the presidential candidate. They don't get exactly the same share of the vote, but whether anyone runs ahead or behind enough to actually flip the outcome is very uncertain. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I, I don't think we'll know. Kelly probably could have won in Arizona if Biden lost narrowly. I don't think we'll know, but because Biden is going to win. But North Carolina, you know, remember pre-scandal Cunningham was running three, four five points ahead of Biden. You know, now mm-hmm. do you think Cunningham can win if Biden
0: doesn't? I, I don't anymore. No, but and, Biden is Biden's going to win North Carolina. But the well, reason the, the, right. so the, the reason the are not going out. Yeah, we, yeah, we right. won't so, find out. But the reason this is so weird is because this race is going to be is being pushed in North Carolina by something totally different. It's like the 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 tail is wagging the dog because the gubernatorial candidate on the Republican side, yeah. Dan Forrest, is so trash of a candidate. He's So Republicans don't even like him. He's getting beat by 12 points by Roy Cooper. And Roy's yeah. done a great job. So he's kind of lifting up the Democratic ticket. If we can keep Kyle Cunningham from texting over the next 24 to 48 hours. He may. Um, pull yeah. this off.
2: Can I just say, like the big picture to me, and as I wrote in the Atlantic this week, and, and why I think the the 2020s could be the most dangerous decade since the 1850s. I do think you are going to see an historic consolidation of the emerging America, diverse metro, uh, info age economy based America, is going to consolidate to an unprecedented degree to reclaim control of the, of the country's direction. And on the other side of that line, you know, as I say, you could draw an imaginary beltway around every population center in the country, and inside of it is becoming more blue. Outside has been Republican. Uh, Outside of those beltways, Biden actually is going to put some fractures in the Trump coalition. Um, He is not going to lose non-college whites or those mid-sized industrial cities. The Scrantons uh, and Erie's and Toledo's of the world by as much as Clinton did. But in the long run, and so, and and I think that is a very tough squeeze on the president. The parts of America where he was always weak are consolidating further against him. The parts where he's strong, while he remains strong, there will be these hairline fractures, you know, that that just kind of cut into his margin a little bit. And that's how you get the kind of numbers you see out of Wisconsin uh, and Michigan in particular, where, you know, the electorate has a lot of people who demographically like Trump. Having said that, I think the long-term trajectory is that is that the Democratic Party is going to face inexorable pressure—understandable, deserved, entirely appropriate pressure—to more accurately reflect its coalition. I mean, look at the leadership now—it's kind of white septuagenarians. That is not going to be the case very much longer. <laughs> and I mean, black septuagenarians.
0: Have, what's up, Jim Clyburn? But yes, yeah, yes,
2: <laughs> yes, one, one. But you could have a 2024. Democratic leadership that is, uh, you know, Kamala Harris is the presidential nominee, Pete Buttigieg, an openly gay man, is the vice presidential nominee. Hakeem Jeffries is the speaker. uh, You know, more leaders of color in the Senate. You're probably going to have AOC as a very prominent figure by the end of this decade, because whatever else you say about her, she's a very talented politician. And all of that is going to inspire what I call the coalition of transformation, the kind of metro based, diverse America. But it's also likely going to further trigger the Trump coalition, you know, I, I often say that if so many non-college and Christian whites are open to a Trump message of racial nationalism when they are forty-two or forty-three percent of the population, what makes you think fewer of them are going to be open to it when they're thirty-six or thirty-seven? I mean, look at what happened in Texas over the weekend, where Trump supporters ran a Biden bus off the road, or the the pepper spray in North Carolina, or Trump talking about jailing Obama and Biden, and no Republican raising. Uh, you know, their voice, if you have a, a 2020s in which the Democrats kind of encompass and embody the country's diversity, all of the country's diversity, and Republicans become more and more dependent on the portions of white America that feel most alienated from that, I mean, that is just a really explosive combination, especially with the possibility, as we talked about before, the Supreme Court that reflects the values and priorities of that shrinking coalition, telling the majority they can't do what they set out to do, uh, I just think everybody should buckle up. And I also think it means that there's a real necessity for leaders to find ways to avoid the starkest kind of outcome of that of that, of that that sort. And, and Biden's inclination is that, but he needs somebody on the other side to reach back. I mean, you, you need some voices in the Republican Party who say that kind of Trumpian open appeals to racism uh, is not a winning hand. As you've heard me say many times, the Trump strategy is squeezing bigger margins out of shrinking groups. At the expense mm-hmm. of provoking bigger opposition from the groups that are growing, and that is not a strategy that any business in the world uh, would would follow.
0: Well, I want to say thank you so much. This is—I I just know that this is going to be one of the more educational pieces we have. And at the end of the day, the best part about our democracy is that uh, Ron Brownstein could completely be wrong about absolutely everything. Yeah, I hope not.
2: <laughs> right? Yes, the voters, the voters, you know, the voters. <laughs> that's why you play the game.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's why you play the game. Well, thank you so much for joining the Bukhari Sellers podcast. I wish. We were in person in some D.C. hotel able to do this, as we always are. But instead, we're from afar. So take care of yourself. My best to your family and have an amazing, amazing election day, Ron.
2: Thanks. And same to you. I really appreciate being here.
0: That episode was everything and more. Thank you again, Ron, for breaking through all the noise and making it plain for our listeners. So for this week's one more thing, I'm going to keep it short and simple. Go vote if you haven't. Either cast your vote in person at the precinct or go in person and drop off your ballot. There's no other way to vote at this point. Go get it done. If you voted already, make that last donation to a campaign, volunteer for a shift on election day. Don't text and call your political friends all day and ask them what they're hearing. Because if we're all doing what we're supposed to be doing and we have the flexibility and privilege not to work on Tuesday, we all need to find a way to be helpful and help someone beat a Republican somewhere. So we should be busy on Tuesday working. And that's that on that. We'll have a special episode air live on Wednesday after Election Day with the incomparable James Carville, where we'll level set on what we know from returns we have and what the next few weeks will look like, where we'll hopefully be making a way for a Biden-Harris White House. And we'll be at the beginning of the end of our national nightmare.